The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. John 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 and Mary Magdalene's beautiful, really beautiful encounter with Jesus. Again, the resurrection, it, it changes everything. What we see in our text is a new relationship, a new way of communing with Christ, a new relationship with the Father, with each other. There's always hope for the future because of it. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago we looked at verses 1 through 10. We saw that the tomb was, was mostly empty. Mary Magdalene was the first to arrive, noticing the stone was rolled away and assumed that grave robbers or someone had taken Jesus' body. So she ran and told Peter and John. If we piece John's account together with the other gospel accounts, we would understand that Mary, she first came with a, with a group of women. John only, he only mentions Mary, I think because... Mary is her focus here in in our text this morning. She's the first person to see Jesus. When Mary runs and tells Peter and John, she says in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. The we tells us that Mary did not come to the tomb alone. And this agrees with the other gospel accounts. Apparently, while Mary ran to tell the disciples, the other women stayed at the tomb. And this is where we read of this angelic encounters in the other three Gospels. And these women apparently were already gone by the time John and Peter arrived. And apparently, uh, John and Peter were not gentlemen at all. They ran to the tomb, leaving poor Mary in her grief. Mary followed behind, coming back to the tomb. And by the time that she gets there, John and Peter had already left. Two weeks ago, we saw how John and Peter processed what they were seeing in this not-so-empty tomb. How John first looked and saw the linen, linen wrappings. How Peter barged in and saw in wonder, theorizing about what he was looking at and how it just didn't make sense. And then John finally enters and saw in a way that led to belief. He understood what what it all meant. That the only explanation is that Jesus' body was glorified and passed through the linen cloths. Robbers did not take him. They would have taken everything of value, and the linen cloths were valuable. This wasn't like what happened to Lazarus, who needed to be unbound from the linen. No, everything was, was neatly wrapped With all of the fragrant spices right in place, John saw it. He got it. Something glorious had happened, and Jesus must be alive. And instead of being gentlemen, instead of waiting for Mary to tell her this good news, they go back to their homes. 
poor Mary. Some have said that Mary's faith and hope had died with Jesus on the cross. But still, there was love. Love compelled her to come to the tomb. It's impossible for us to to feel the depth of her despair. Because, well, we know the rest of the story, right? Prior to the cross, these these disciples, they, they believed and hoped in what they understood. But they missed a lot. And the crucifixion of their Lord absolutely destroyed their world. Think about, what if, what if you had certain assumptions about life and the future, about your happiness and health and financial freedom, and then you lose everything? The loss of a child or a spouse, the loss of a, of a marriage through divorce when you expected it would be for as long as you both shall live. The loss of your business or home. And in a moment, your life is not what you thought it would be. And you can't see any possibility, any hope at all that you'll ever have what you want. For us, we get that, but there's always hope for a believer in Christ. There's always hope. It's always something that we look to. Because we know, we know more than Jesus' death. We know his resurrection. But for Mary, there's no hope at all. If this were our reality... How would it change our songs? How would it change our worship? Could we, could we sing, my worth is not in what I own? Why would we sing, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul? If he was dead, nothing to hope for, and your world has crashed down all around you. This is Mary Magdalene. Faith is dead. Hope is gone. But there's love. Love compels her to go and care for Jesus' body. And now, after a long walk in the dark, even this is gone. And after going back into town and, and telling the disciples, still, she's alone. You come back to the tomb and the the women that you came with, the disciples that you told, everyone's gone. You're alone. Now let's read, beginning at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will, I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's hard to imagine to feel the extreme emotions that Mary must have felt, the, the depth of her despair, and then the, the unexpected joy. And Lord, if we do have such a sense of despair, help us to see and believe that no matter what is going on, that if we know and trust Jesus, Help us to know deep within our souls that our pain is only temporary. That our hope is not a fairy tale or some pointless optimism, but that it's real. Because Jesus is more real than, Lord, than any, anything or anyone we know. Lord, strengthen our faith. Build our hope. Restore a confidence and joy through our time in your word. Apply its truth to each person listening so that we may know the great reality of Jesus' resurrection and that there's nothing more relevant than this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll follow along in your Bibles We're just going to work our way through this. We read in verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. From Mary's perspective, Jesus was dead. His body defiled and taken. All she had was was love that wanted to honor Jesus. And now she couldn't even do this. Her faith was dead. Her expectations gone. No hope, only love. And now she couldn't even express this. She's at a complete loss. And many of you know what this feels like. You don't know how you'll ever get out of bed. How you'll carry on again. And the tears cloud your ability to see and to think. This is Mary Magdalene, alone. And once again, coming to the tomb of Jesus, she stooped to look in, and verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And Mary is unfazed. That's what's surprising here. There's no reaction. What we see 
all throughout the scriptures is that when people are confronted with a a gloriously supernatural shiny angel, they usually fall to the ground like dead people in terror or they're tempted to worship. And I wonder if the angels were so accustomed to this kind of reaction that they were expecting to say, fear not, Maybe they started and it was like, no, never mind. It's unusual. Is she weeping to the point of not knowing they're angels? Or is she in such despair that she doesn't even care? Apparently, John and Peter didn't need this same comfort because this is what angels do. After scaring people, they, they're ministering spirits sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. But God knows Mary's grief. The angels were there. They appeared to some. Peter and John get there. They're not there. Mary comes back. The Lord sends ministering spirits to her. And one is where the head of Jesus would have been, and the other at his feet. Some have described this as being like a, a living image of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark with its, with its golden angels on the mercy seat, where the blood of the sacrifice would be poured out, showing that Jesus, by this living example, showing that Jesus is the true sacrifice for sin. That he's paid the price in full. And the angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Again, don't miss the level of grief. To be in the presence of glorious angels who then speak to her, and she's unmoved. She's not fearing for her life. All she cares about is Jesus. And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. After the initial reaction, their presence should have brought comfort. It should have caused her to see that something glorious has happened. In our tearless eyes, we can see, we can remember that angels were continually with Jesus to serve him in his earthly life. They were, they were at the conception of his birth. It continued throughout his life leading to the cross and now the empty tomb. The presence of these angels is a tangible reminder that God is present and at work. And we know that when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, to gather his saints from the four corners of the earth for the final resurrection, that his angels will be present. And if Mary did know that these were angels, and it's hard to imagine that she didn't, what does this communicate but that No experience ever satisfies our hearts. It's not what she's looking for. It it will not do. People seek after supernatural experiences, angelic beings, 
as if this is the answer, as if this experience will, will carry them through life and give it meaning. And I love the fact that Mary is not even distracted by such an unusual experience as this. It tells us that only Jesus will do. We don't need signs. We don't need miracles. We don't need some experience. Even an encounter with a spiritual being. Nothing compares, nothing compares to knowing and experiencing the presence of Jesus. And we just have enjoyed that this morning. Don't go looking for anything else. If you belong to Jesus, nothing else compares. And he is with you always through the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is a key truth. For understanding the rest of our text. But for now, Mary wasn't satisfied by angels. She's looking for Jesus. So, verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. And we think, how in the world does she not recognize him? Does it speak to her state of mind? A crushed spirit that has, has no expectation of ever experiencing joy again. No hope. Maybe, maybe the tears are so great that her physical vision is blurred. Maybe she, like the Emmaus Road disciples, was being kept from recognizing him. And is John suggesting some symbolism here that Mary needed to realize that she was looking in the wrong place, that she needed to turn from the tomb and look for him among the living. And even in seeing him, that her, her expectations are wrong, that she was looking for a dead Jesus of the past instead of the living Jesus who stood before her now. And so, in your grief, in your seemingly hopeless situation, are you even looking for Jesus? Is he just some guy in a book? Someone from history? Someone that doesn't seem real to you because, because you can't hug him? Or are you looking for the Jesus who is always with you? Indwelling you by the Spirit, knowing you and your situation and sovereignly intending it for your good? Do you come each Sunday looking for Jesus who is worthy of your praise, your singing, your joy, your hope, regardless of the present pain and tears? Are you looking for Jesus who speaks to your situation as he speaks to Mary's, saying, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He's not dead. He's not the gardener. 
He's right there. And yet we don't see him. And Jesus' question is both a gentle reproof and yet filled with tender compassion. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I'm not dead. I'm with you. I'm the answer to every grief. One author notes that Jesus' question was not aimed at her grief, which poured from Mary's love, but instead it was aimed at the unbelief that was operating within her grief. And we can do that, can't we? It's a good reminder to us that God is tender-hearted, that Jesus understands our tears as he wept, He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. The tears and grief are a part of this life. But we do not mourn or grieve as unbelievers do. There should always be faith. Believing in God, the resurrected Christ stands before us, always giving us a certain hope, even and especially in our tears. So Mary, Mary is still focused on a dead body, even even willing to carry it by herself. And Jesus simply said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Look at how Jesus cares for his own. In the midst of grief. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't tell her to stop it. In the greatest, this is the greatest day of all. The greatest day of all. And Jesus takes the time to show up and bring her comfort. As Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Notice how Jesus opens Mary's eyes. She didn't recognize him, but then he calls her by name. The good shepherd calls each of his sheep by name, and we hear his voice and follow him. John Calvin comments, Thus in Mary we have a a lively image of our calling." For the only way in which we are admitted to the true knowledge of Christ is by that voice with which he especially calls his sheep, which the Father has given to him. If you see Jesus as having died for your sins, if you see that he is the resurrection and the life, if you've heard this good news and you opened your heart to him and responded in faith, then you too are one of his sheep. You heard his voice calling you by name. And this is why you follow him. And Mary's response is the response of a disciple. It's a response of following Jesus, acknowledging him as Rabboni, as as teacher. And she knows, of course, that he's much more than a teacher, but she's still his disciple She'll always learn from him. She'll always want to obey him and follow him. And this needs to be true of us. 
If Jesus is your Savior, then He's also your Lord. And any idea of having Jesus as your Savior and not your Lord is nonsense. He's your master, Rabboni, the teacher that you obey because you love him, the good shepherd that you'll always follow. And if he's not, if he's not Rabboni, if he's not your Lord, if, he, if you ignore his commands, then he's not your Savior. And you are not one of his sheep. Mary, she finally sees. And can you imagine her her joy from one extreme to the other. It's amazing how our lives can change in a moment, isn't it? Usually we think of the, in the negative sense, an injury, a diagnosis, a death, going from a normal happy life to hearing some news and it just changes like that. But this changes in reverse. From hopeless to hope. From despair to joy. Just in a moment. Seeing him. So of course she falls at his feet and and holds on tight. And now we come to a very strange verse in our Bibles. One that doesn't seem to make much sense. Jesus says, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Why does Jesus tell her not to cling to him? What does his eventual ascension have to do with this? It's a strange comment. It's a strange comment to her understandable joy. And there's some strange interpretations of this. Liberals will say that Jesus didn't have a true body, so she shouldn't touch it. But we know this isn't true because pretty soon he's telling Thomas to touch him. Put his his fingers in Jesus' side. Touch his wounds. And then we wonder, why is it okay for Thomas and it's not okay for Mary Magdalene? Why invite Thomas to touch him but tell Mary, don't cling to me? Others have thought that that Jesus didn't want her to hold him because he was, he was about to ascend. But the ascension's not for another 40 days. So that doesn't make any sense. So why? Why does Jesus say this? And what does the ascension have to do with it? Here are two ways to understand it. The, the first way is very simple. I like how R.C. Sproul describes it saying, she was hanging on to him for dear life. Because she thought she had lost him, but now she she had him back. So he said, it's okay, I'm not leaving yet. We still have some more time. I'm going to come and be with the disciples. I'm going to be with you for 40 days or so. You don't have to hold me captive. I like this simple description because it explains that it's It's not about touching him. Thomas needed to touch him so that he'd believe. The point isn't touching. The point is clinging. I'm going to ascend, but not yet. You don't need to hold me down. I think this is right, but I think there's more to it than that. 
A second way to understand this is that Jesus is saying, now because I will ascend, our relationship will be different. She's clinging to him because she thought she'd lost what she previously enjoyed, his physical presence. And now there he is. But this is only until the ascension. In essence, Jesus is saying, don't hold on to the past. Don't hold on to the past. Our former type of relationship. It's going to be better than that. It's to your advantage that the Holy Spirit come when I ascend. Gerhard Voss explains, the desire for a real communion of life would soon be met in a new and far higher way than was possible under the conditions of local earthly nearness. Okay, makes me think of my silly assumption of that long hug Jesus line in glory where everyone, you know, is just waiting to hug Jesus. And it's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of a a curious a serious question that I have uh, because there will be a day when we all have resurrected bodies like Jesus. And I wonder, how's that going to work? So it comes back to the question of how will we relate with him? The long hug Jesus line assumes that a physical nearness is what we should want. But think of it. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus is near to you and to me and to millions upon millions of people at the same time? You enjoy an intimacy with him all the time. You don't have to wait in a line. That's way better. That's way better than what the disciples enjoyed. We wrongly assume that physical presence is better or, or more real than this new kind of presence with our ascended Lord. And I get it. Physical seems better. Zoom is great. Live stream is a blessing. But being together... Physically, it's just much better, isn't it? And so we tend to think this way about Jesus. Maybe that our communion through the Holy Spirit is more like Zoom than the real thing. But it's just not true. Jesus said, this is better. What we enjoy today is a greater communion with Jesus than the experience of those who knew him in the flesh. As Paul expressed it, Christ lives in me. Incredible. We may wrongly think and feel that Jesus seems far away and distant, but he's not. He said it was to our advantage that ascending into glory means that Jesus is now intimately close to each of us. At the same time, you don't need to make an appointment Paul urges us to not think in these earthly, 
confining sort of ways, saying, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Jesus is near. He lives in us by the Holy Spirit's inward ministry of the Word of God, the living Word of God. So if you long for Jesus, read His Word. Pray to Him. You don't need to bring Christ down or up to you. He's near. He's in your heart by the Spirit through His Word. The physical relationship is not better The physical relationship is not better. Our spiritual communion is. And I suspect that any any improvement to come, we look forward to the day in which we will see him with our eyes. I suspect that, that that improvement has more to do with our transformation. That when we see him, we will be like him. And so the the better communion to come is not because of its physical nature, but because of our personal transformation. No longer having eyes or thinking that's clouded by sin. We will be like him. More clearly seeing and understanding and rejoicing in his glory. Mary wants to restore and cling to the past. And Jesus is pointing her forward to a spiritual presence that will never leave her forever. It's wonderful news. And he tells her, verse 17, to go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's easy to miss the significance of this message. It's easy to miss it because he doesn't use the word adoption. But that's implied here. It's easy to miss it if you wrongly believe that that all people are God's children. That God is everyone's father. And people wrongly believe this because, well, yes, all people are God's creatures... Humans are made in his image, so there is a sense in which we are his offspring. But this is not at all the same as saying we are God's children. Remember how John began his gospel saying, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And think of Paul's description of us, of mankind prior to faith. In Christ, prior to faith in Christ, that we were what? We were by nature children of wrath. And how Jesus offended the Jews by describing them as children of the devil because of their wicked deeds. So biblically speaking, God is a father only to those who are born again to faith in Christ. And the blessing of this means that we are children of God, adopted into his love. 
Sometimes I think that we miss how incredible this truth is because we're so focused on the other wonderful benefits of salvation that we've been saved from hell, from God's wrath, that we're forgiven, that we're going to enjoy eternal life. But there's more. We get to enjoy a relationship with God himself. Not only is the problem fixed, but the relationship is now the status of sons. And calling us sons is not meant to ignore or leave out the women. Don't don't be offended by that. It's just another way of saying you're an heir. You have a great and glorious inheritance. In biblical times, the son was the legal heir. But all who are in Christ, male or female, are heirs, are sons. So ladies, don't be offended by this. This is not sexist. It's, not, it, it's a description of relationship and privilege. You are sons. While men have to grapple with the description of being a bride. It's the same kind of thing. Don't be distracted by the words. Pay attention to the meaning, the truth that's being illustrated to us. So where do I see adoption in the text? Notice that Jesus didn't say, I am ascending to our Father and to our God. He said, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is related to the Father in a different and unique way. The basis is one of nature and eternity. And with us, it is adoption based on our union with Christ, which means that he's our elder brother who has brought us into this relationship of love with the Father. Not only is Jesus saying, don't cling to me, Because there's a new way of communing with me. He's also saying there's a new relationship with God. No longer are we just a part of his creation as image bearers or a people. Now we are adopted sons. And oh, what a great blessing this is. Fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. They provide, they defend, they lovingly discipline wanting the very best for their children. And where earthly fathers may fail, our heavenly father will always be faithful. Fathers listen to their children and want to hear their concerns. And so prayer is a special privilege for his adopted children. And now we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus sent this message to all his brothers, to all believers in every generation, saying, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So it's not presumptuous for a believer to expect God's fatherly acceptance and care and love, but it is presumptuous for us to not believe it to doubt it. 
We may struggle for a a variety of reasons, but God will always be our perfect father. He will never let us down. And if you experience times when, when it seems like he's letting you down, just know, just remember that he promises to not withhold any good thing from you. You may, you may receive something very painful and difficult. You may never understand this side of glory, how it could be in any way good, But God is the perfect father. The one who definitely knows best. The one who loves you and will use that weighty suffering to give you an eternal weight of glory. In the end, you will not be disappointed. So look to Jesus. Experience his his real presence in the word. Through the Holy Spirit, talk with him. Talk with him and like Mary, go and tell others that you've seen Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your glorious grace given to us in the person of Jesus. Grant hope and joy and strengthened faith to your people. Grant us a love that continues to look and see and follow Jesus. May your spirit confirm his presence to us. Give us a hunger for your word. And to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.